0: Visit tecovas.com, that's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and don't go gently, y'all.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Journey Within podcast. So we're going to dig into another one of the uh, North American deer species slams here today, and I've got Aaron Blysee and Justin Fabian here with me. Um, Justin was with me on this hunt, and obviously Aaron's kind of the the mastermind between editing all these and Mr. Deer himself on the fall podcast over there. So great one to have on here, and he's actually going to semi take the lead and and ask questions of how this hunt went and how it compares to other deer species and so forth as well. How are you guys doing today? Good,
2: pretty good. Mark, I was hoping you were going to say Fabian. I thought we I Fabian. thought we were, we were going to keep Fabian. that trend going.
1: If you, if you caught it, there was a slight pause as I was doing Justin's name because I wanted to make sure to get it right today for the first time. I love it. Yeah, I love I, it.
3: I was, I was going to actually say I appreciate you saying it right. So, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for pointing it out a lot quicker. Yeah.
1: Mr.
2: Fabian. Oh, Mark's getting stuff in his phone. You're gonna hear beep, beeps, and stuff like that through. But uh, yes, no, glad to be here. And we're in obviously three different locations here. Um, I'm in Michigan. Mark's in Michigan at his house, and Justin's in. I actually think he's on the East Coast somewhere. So uh, I really don't know where you're at right now. I'm
3: in North Carolina. I'm in North Carolina for right now. I got you. Helping um, move as we avoid hurricane. Hurricane yeah Ian.
2: is that in your path right now
3: uh no we're, we're in uh, Charlotte <clears throat> we're in Charlotte so it's pretty far inland but we're gonna get some rain out of it tomorrow mm-hmm. hopefully after get on a plane to go to Denver
2: <laughs> there you go well uh like Mark said um this will be the part of the the Texas whitetail species so Mark I guess first and foremost I mean you know as of now you know the Michigan hunt has, the northeastern deer has aired and I mean that was such a cool hunt because it's in your backyard, you know, and it's you know, where we cut our teeth, even Justin, as far as like those Midwestern I say Midwestern, Northeastern, they're a lot of the same type of deer. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's very cool. And for you to be able to pull a deer out of that that size of Michigan, I mean, that's that's saying something. That's really neat.
1: Yeah, it is cool just being right literally on my driveway. Um for the third year in a row, is is pretty darn cool.
2: Yeah, so I guess getting into this Texas Texas thing, first question I have for you, Mark, is why Texas? I mean, I know probably why, but for everybody out there listening, like what was going through your head and and why you felt like you needed to go to Texas to to take down one of these one of these whitetails. Yeah, so I mean,
1: there are a couple different answers to this. Obviously, when I was putting together the North America Deer Slam and separating all the subspecies when it when it gets to whitetail there's so many different subspecies that that either sci or the north america deer slam like that like other people have had so when i came to put this thing all together everybody seemed to have texas separated out and i say texas separated out and it's got a portion of uh new mexico in it too that they that i guess everybody would consider a texas whitetail so by separating that one out, obviously, as I was starting to plan out which hunts I was going to do the first year, second year, third year, and fourth year. Um, the first year, if you look at what I did, obviously with the with the driveway deer here, the northeastern deer, and then going to Texas, it was it was one that I was very familiar with, and then I wanted to go to Texas because when I grew up. Like when I was watching hunting shows in in high school, the late nineties, and then into the two thousands when I was in college and graduated and so so forth, it seemed like Texas, like how many TV shows were done in Texas in the, in the two thousands, thousands, right? Yeah. Like, so when I, when I grew up, I'd, I'd never hunted deer in Texas before white deer in Texas before. So it was one of those things like, man, I want to do that. I think it's one that resonates with a lot of hunters just because they've seen it so much. And there's so many hunters in Texas and it's such a way of life. Like, I'm like, man, this has got to be one that, that I do in the first year, just, just with the heritage, the history, everything behind it. That's why I planned it out the first year.
3: Yeah. It's what chime in here real quick, Aaron. It's, it almost seems like it's like, it's one of the more like quote unquote cultural deer hunts, like in North America, if you ask me. And it's, it's just so synonymous with like, if you've never rattled in a buck before, you can go to texas and rattle in a buck i mean that's what happened with earl on this mm-hmm. same hunt so it's you know marks didn't get rattled in but i mean the footage of earls was like it's just you have to do it like yeah. and it's and it's don't get me wrong like i think i'll think a lot of that stuff like in the 2000s i think people kind of caught on to the fact that some of those hunts were probably high fence and like there was that that magic golden triangle of south texas and it's you know to be clear we were hunting free range whitetails on 6,000 acres, you know, and it was just that deer density is so huge in the, in the success, obviously, and the way you can hunt deer down there.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's what I'm glad you clarified that because honestly, I mean the culture, I think behind Texas and some people that are from Texas might be bashing me through the radio or phone, whatever they're going to say here. But to me, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is really good whitetails, but also majority high fence. Like that's, that's or what it comes feeder. to mind, yeah. you know?
1: Hey everybody, 2022 was an awesome tag application year. We had a bunch of clients draw some amazing tags and just starting to see the trophy picks in the field. Wow. But you know what? It's time to start planning ahead. 2023 is right around the corner. The state of Alaska, all species deadline is December 15th. That's right. It's already time to start planning ahead for 2023. State of Alaska deadline is December 15th. Make sure to give the guys in the office a call or check out our website, WorldwideTrophyAdventures.com for more information. That That is very true. And also, I guess... I think we've reiterated this time and time again, but probably worth one. Again, the the North American deer slam is all going to be free range deer, um, through the whole, through the whole process. So that was, that was a good point. I guess you should probably answer that one right away. Um, but it is in the two thousands when you were watching TV, nobody really called out that it was a high fence deer hunt that they were on down there or so forth, um, I mean, obviously now you can, you can watch and you can tell I mean, you can tell right away by the size of deer, if you're shooting 185 or a 200 inch deer down in Texas, most likely that's from a, from a high fence. Um, but as like, as going into going into this one, you still watch, like you could tell free range deer, they just look so much bigger for like, I mean, obviously their antlers, their antlers look so much bigger than you were watching like a Missouri deer come in. And you know, that Missouri deer is bigger, but it's all because of body size. Like that was probably one of the things that shocked me the most about texas is we had a 130 inch deer come in and it just looked huge i mean the antlers were way out past its ears up and tall and you're like oh my goodness and then we walked up on it and you're like ah, that's why it looks so much bigger is the
2: body is so much smaller <laughs> yeah what is you know talking about that and in the size obviously why they are only the size they are is because the habitat they live in and you know, in the it doesn't really get cold like the north down there. So in the vegetation they have to eat. I mean, they just to me it's kind of a like Mark you you said like a subspecies. It definitely is from what we're in the most from what we're used to and like the more general hunting public is used to in the midwestern deer. They are very much smaller. Like Mark, you even said it in the episode. Like that buck. Back home, like we have does bigger than that at back home. Oh.
1: Absolutely. But then you're like so comparing like the terrain and habitat. So that's more similar like where where we hunted in Texas, which is central Texas, where we hunted the terrain and habitat is more similar to like a a, a coos deer hunt than it is to where I hunt in Michigan or have hunted deer anywhere else. It's it's desert it's Desert floor, there's some egg fields there, and if you get an egg field there, I mean an egg, uh, uh, egg field, the deer hammer it because that's the main food source. Mm-hmm. And then they're basically going into this scrub desert brushes where they where they bed up. It's nasty. There's I'm not a big snake guy. There's snakes there, <laughs> briars like anything will poke you. Spiders all over the place, like all like all that stuff. And you're like, well, it's no wonder the deer are a lot smaller body wise. They just have to work so much more. And, and it's one of those things, like we repeat it time and time again, as the farther you go south, it seems the smaller the deer body is compared to the farther you go north, the bigger the deer body is. The farther south you go, the higher deer density. The farther north you go, the lower deer density. Yep. And that's one thing about, about Texas. Like we were in the stand and the instant you were in the stand, you started seeing does. And I mean, not just one or two does. You saw a lot of does
3: yeah and it, so that, that's called bergman's rule and it's just a uh, for any any mammal really that you know the body size is going to change with latitude so the further south they're going to be smaller the further north they're going to be bigger obviously because of weather and you know the winters that they have to endure but like it goes both ways like you couldn't put a texas white tail in saskatchewan and expect it to survive past probably november right and you couldn't take that deer out of saskatchewan Texas, you know and that's why in that whole like deer breeding scene, like you can buy the genetics and then breed them once you're you know, in those places, but you can't take a live animal and, and swap them around like that. But that's, I don't know. Fun fact. No, I knew, Jeopardy.
1: <laughs> yeah. I knew that there was a specific rule. I just didn't know the exact name like Justin did here. Justin, what's your, what's your schooling background for all the followers on here, which is why you're so, so intelligent. You are
3: got to my my educational background is in wildlife science and then i've got a biologist certification for whitetails let's
1: see there there that's and that's why we have justin joining us on this call for those little knowledge drops throughout
2: exactly sure. that's that is that's what he's here for but what <laughs> it's really cool to hear stuff like that though because you know as a general hunting public again like the, the whitetail deer in general is a deer that is to me, is the most adaptable to its surroundings. But to hear you talk about mm-hmm. putting a Texas whitetail in Saskatchewan, he'll probably adapt for a little while, like you said, but eventually he's just not going to probably make her. He's just not, you know, it's not in his DNA no, to, to, to try to get big and get ready for the winter.
3: The biggest factor in it, how they survive like that, like if that was to happen, would be just the change in their diet. Like, you take a deer out of Saskatchewan that's eating tree bark and, you know, foraging pretty much. Like, I don't even know what their specific diet would be up there, like, on a regular basis. But you put them in Texas with different vegetation, they would actually starve to death with a full stomach because their rumen pH isn't acclimated to digest the food, the new food they're eating.
2: Yeah. Well, this this podcast took a turn. I I didn't think we were going to get a DNA. Yeah. I am. Just sitting over here taking notes. You keep going, Justin. <laughs> no,
3: I like no. this. That's no. good.
2: It's a different element than I thought we were going to get this morning. <laughs>
3: yeah, but well, I'm only halfway done with my coffee. Dang. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. No, so kind of get, ba- get back on the rails here. <laughs> um, so Texas, I mean, like you said, Mark, rich history, big cultural thing, and it's something that you want to do since you were a kid. So I totally get that what uh what made you land on like the central texas region why not west texas or south texas stuff like that like what made you land on the region you went to
1: so this is actually one of the things when i was planning again we mentioned 100 percent free range um so when we planned this justin has actually been on this ranch before so when we were planning it out um I wanted to go somewhere that I 100% knew were free range deer, nothing introduced all the all that jazz and had great hunting and and Justin had talked about this ranch numerous times so as we were planning I'm like man you you've been there you've seen what it is you know what it is let's let's go there with that history that you've had
2: I got you so you you were kind of limited in a in a in a sense because you wanted it to be free range no doubt and then Justin just happened to have you know, cause Justin, he's been in Texas for years, guiding, hunting, and doing the whitetail scene there, breeding and everything. Cause he's worked for some high fence operations, but also some free range operations. And, yep. um, so he's been around that, that scene. So I, I definitely thought that was probably a little bit of the, the angle, but I do like that you clarified, like you were, you definitely wanted it to be free range.
1: It is. And a lot of the places, so at WTI, I mean, we book for outfitters all over Texas, all different sorts. A lot of them, and I say a lot, uh, over 50% of them um, outfit on both high fence and low fence areas to where they're in this. I mean, they're in the same area. It's the same land that they're doing, except part of it is is fenced off. And, And when I say fenced off, it's not seven acres fenced off. It's thousands of acres fenced off um but still like I didn't even want to go to one just because as you guys know the keyboard warriors out there are strong strong and in force so I didn't want to even go one of those places that had that had both I just wanted to completely separate it out um now we I know those places are are completely legit but that was 100% for the keyboard warriors so there wasn't anybody with any any doubt
2: yep no that makes total sense so let's get a little bit into like let's start getting into this hunt and and breaking this down um the first question i have for you is like what phase of the rut or phase of the season i guess did you guys show up in, and, and did this hunt take place
1: now we just with my schedule and some bird hunts and then coaching and everything we went in extremely early season um and they normally don't even don't even hunt this this early they normally wait another week or two um but just with our schedule and how it laid out we we went in um as you know, anywhere you go in early season, the deer are generally a little bit more on a pattern, um, but the rut wasn't going. And that's one of those things in Texas, if the rut's going, you bust out and start rattling, you're going to get deer coming out of the scrub that you've never seen, um, and just a lot more movement. So we, how this hunt went, it was a little funny. So we, we were blind hunting basically on deer that were, were semi-patterned um that's how my 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 hunt went down as i it was day two we were sitting there and in the morning um one of the target deer just just came out of the woodwork and all of a sudden there he was and it was over now dad did it a little bit different they they tried to bust out the rattling and and actually rattled his deer in it was extremely early so when you set up to rattle it wasn't like 10 out of 10 deer over there start coming in it was maybe one out of 10 would would have this semi interest in the rattle
2: i gotcha. now your dad doing that why didn't she, well first of all like what time of the year were you there was it late october because i know their seasons like their rut is actually in like december like yeah, yep, like we were that there Christmas. late october okay so yeah it would be like for everybody you know having been to texas that'd be like uh september you know early september probably time frame would that be right in like yeah, the midwestern
1: like with with how the deer were acting i would say it's probably like uh like that third week of september Okay, to where they're where they're not they're not just on a straight pattern like early September, but they're still semi patternable, and they haven't got to the point that they're the ruts kicked on at all to where the does are anything and the bucks aren't chasing. So it was like a lot of people call it in Kentucky. It's like that that late September lull. Okay, um, gotcha. But even in that lull in Kentucky, you can still get deer that are patternable and and still get on a good one.
2: Yep. So you know, saying that you talked about being on feed and you know, feeders are a a prevalent thing in Texas and everything. And so are food plots. And going into this, you knew that you probably were going to have to result to some sort of feed. I would think to get Mm -hmm. these deer on a pattern, just like you said, I mean, it's early season. So trying to get them on that bed to food, is that what your, what your head was?
1: Yep. Yeah. And I mean, it's no, it's no secret. I mean, how you hunt in the majority of spots in Texas is if you have a food plot and a lot of, a lot of spots, like the ranch we hunted, it wasn't the low right next to the river. So you, I mean, you can't grow anything on that. The dirt is desert floor dirt. It's not like you're planting a cornfield or alfalfa or anything in there. So just like in a lot of spots in Texas, what they use is a, is a feeder. So there, they were, they had a corn feeder. So you're basically pulling these deer out of the scrub and out of the brush on, onto a, a corn feeder. And we, I mean, like that's something we don't hide. Like you'll see it in the video of everything that, that happens. Um, and I guess that's, that's all part of this, this slam too, like how, how it's done in different areas. Like we're going to Saskatchewan later this year and, and depending on if we're going to hunt an egg field or if we're going to go up into the provincial forest, you hunt two different ways in Saskatchewan. Like if we're hunting an egg field, we're, we're going to hunt a corner of an egg field. And then it depends on how much snow and ice is there when we're there. But if you're up in the provincial forest, you're hunting over alfalfa and stuff like that. Yeah. Just spread alfalfa. Cause it's again, like there's not much food up there. So when you do stuff like that, you're just drawing deer in from miles away. It just increases your odds.
2: Well, and that, that's something that I really like about this whole deer slam. I mean, this is going to be a multiple year project. And when this is all said and done, people are going to be able to go back and look at this and look at how to kill like a bracket deer in the jungle. And see, I talked about this before on the Michigan one, where, where there are similar parallels between species even though they're in totally different regions of the world there's 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 some similar parallels and there's some vastly different parallels but also like i like to see how you're doing it you know, Texas, that's what it's known for rattling and then feed. Mm -hmm. So like, you're going to go do that, you know, Michigan, you killed on a food plot. Well, that's very Michigan-esque. That's very Northeastern-esque, uh, big woods, kind of that, that, that thing. Now the Saskatchewan thing, you're going to kind of, it's not like you're trying to reinvent the wheel. Like we're going to try to go up there and do it the way that everybody else does it, or it has been done for years and it was pioneered. Like, that's what I really like to see about this.
1: Yep. And that's the exact, that's the exact way we're going to do it. I'm like, I'm not going to roll in Saskatchewan and be like, no, this is, this is how we do it over in Ohio or something like that. Right. Like you, they've got literally hundreds of years of experience up there. So we're going to experience that specific experience. What happens in Saskatchewan? Same thing. Like there's a whole bunch of subspecies down in Mexico and a lot of these have never been filmed before. Like you can't find any, like a Mexican Pacific coast whitetail. Like you can't go and Google that thing and find it on YouTube or a Mexican central plateau whitetail. Like you, you just can't go and find those. So what we're going to do is we're going to go with the people in the region and be like, how have you guys done this for the last 50 years? Yeah. Like, you know, you only have limited tags, but how have you done it? What's your culture do with it? Mm-hmm.
2: Yep. No, I agree. And like, even the Carmen whitetail, you know, when mm-hmm. we we're down in Mexico, like that was a lot of high racking, you know, and trying to catch these deer on, like, what I would call, like, a Sendero. I don't know if that's what they would call it, but, like, that's what it pictured to me. But also getting up high on on these hills and trying to see these deer moving back to bed and kind of making a move on them, like, there's a couple different ways of doing it, and I really like that.
1: And that Carmen one, like, when you went there, I had no idea that we'd be on a high rack because I, I looked at a Carmen being very similar to a coos deer, and they said that the ranch obviously i'd never been to the ranch before but they said the ranch was extremely hilly with with hills and mountains and gullies and so forth so i'm like okay thinking in my head i'm gonna be like it's gonna be cool we're gonna get up early we're gonna get up high and start glassing. we're gonna spend hours and hours glassing and what they learned on this ranch over hunting at the last 30 years is that yes we will get up high in glass but the deer are so active in the rut when we are there that you actually can see more bucks and bigger bucks if you get it in high rack and just cover the miles. Mm-hmm. And again, that's something like, we're not just going to go and change that. They found over the last 30 years on that ranch, that increases your your chances of success on bigger deer.
2: Yep. Yeah, definitely. I can totally get that. Justin, are you still there? Because I see you're kind of froze. I'm here. Okay. A question I got for you is like, you know, producing this hunt filming it in that aspect like from your headspace you know going into this knowing that it's going to be a blind hunt more and more than likely possibly on a feeder like how where's your headspace at on how to cover this the best way possible um you know when you're when you're working through that whole you know checklist that you might have
3: um i don't know especially filming whitetails i never discount the fact that the biggest ones are usually going to show up first light and last light. So, you know, using the right camera and lens setup to capture that, if it, if it pushed to that far, which in this case it did. uh, And then what you are limited on, as you know, is space in the blind. So your second or third angles in the blind GoPros, you know, good audio, you know, and honestly, bad audio because of that echo and just that hollow you know tin can kind of a sound you're going to get inside of a box blind but um you know the cool thing about it is being that you're at a feed like you're going to see a lot of deer you're going to get a lot of footage it limits your angles and like how you can film all those deer and like you know your tripod your world is in this four foot window Mm -hmm. but it's fun to get creative with stuff like with GoPros out on feeder legs or, you know, out on the ground outside. It's, it's probably like, it's a really controlled environment to film or produce a hunt as you know, but it's, there's also a lot of things that kind of handcuff you. Yeah. So it's, it's just a, I wouldn't say average, but it's kind of a mundane, you know, production style when you're, when you know you're in the blind looking at a feeder and you just got to stay, creative and think about those those interesting angles you can get because you are going to see a lot of deer yeah that's the cool part
2: yeah that it's a very uh for the sightings it's very target rich you know what i mean you're going to see a lot of, of animals so uh let's let's start with day one you guys get into camp mark and then you're going out to hunt that evening correct correct So what, what, you know, when you get into camp and you talk to the outfitter and, you know, kind of breaking down, I'm sure he's showing you, you know, possible bucks that you're going to see and everything. So how did that break down and like, what was on the quote unquote hit list? Yeah. So when we,
1: when we roll in a lot of spots, obviously we've got a lot of communication going on beforehand. Um, so we rolled in with the, with the timing that we'd be able to get out that afternoon because as Justin hit on earlier, early season i mean you're really it's like the the first 15 to 20 minutes and the last 15 to 20 minutes is prime time for the larger deer you just you hardly ever get a deer that shows up if if it's going to get dark at eight o'clock you hardly ever get a big deer that just shows up at 5 30. like that's just not how it happens so we we got there plenty of time to get out and got to the blind and and so forth but when we got to camp um they had uh some cell picks and some um um, cell camp picks of, of the deer that we were going after and where I was sitting with Justin, um, they had two different larger deer that were coming in and in Texas, the one thing I do like about their management, it's very age based. So, I mean, you could be looking at, and they're like, this deer is going to be coming in and you're like, holy smokes, that's a giant, but it's only a, three and a half year old deer. And they're like, this is, this is not a, not one that we're going to go after. And they start showing you the, the deer that you're sitting on and you're like, oh man, that is an, a much older deer. Like you start studying you can see its facial features, its body features and everything. Um, so we were like, okay, we know exactly what two deer we're looking for. And, and for me, it's like anytime any time I, I look at picks like that, even, even here in Michigan, I, I try to find something that's on their antler that's unique. So I'm like, if I see it through my scope or through the binos, like that's what I look for in each one. Um, so I did that with both the deer that were there and and went out that afternoon, dad did the same exact thing. So that first night he went out and sat in a blind and he had a couple of target deer that were coming into his as well. Um, so he had the, the pictures and studied those and, and both of us went out that first night and we both saw a ton of does and, and some small bucks, but none of the target deer came in. Everyone knows Matthews is the leader in archery innovations and I'm proud to be part of their team. Little did they know I've been part of their team ever since I started pulling a bow back when I was 12. I personally shoot their new Matthews V3X and love it. So go visit MatthewsInc.com and pick out your next bow. Hey everybody, I've been partnered and working with Bass Pro and Cabela's now for a long time. They're your one-stop shop for anything outdoors. Personally, I use them for all my camping and backpack needs for all my backcountry trips. Make sure to check them out at BassPro.com or Cabela's.com. Hey guys, are you into keeping your whitetail herd healthy and strong? Go check out Buck Bourbon and their full line of mineral and attractants. Personally, my favorite is 110 proof because I've had some great memories and great deer taken over top of it in the state of Kentucky. Born from bourbon, field tested, wildlife approved. Check them out at buckbourbon.com.
2: I gotcha. So, you know, night number one kind of, you know, didn't really transpire the way that you wanted to, but, you know talking about it being early, early season. Now the, the big thing going around and it's one of those debates is like, you know, from where we're from is like, do you hunt October mornings? So Mm -hmm. it's like, but I, I feel like there's some things maybe in your head and, and I might be putting words in your mouth, but you're there for X amount of days and you want to maximize those days as much as you can. So are you hunting mornings? Are you like, well, but are you leaving it up to the outfitter and the guide to be like, well, we need to be in there because, you know, he might he he is showing up, you know, pretty frequently. Yep.
1: Yeah, we did. And normally like so I when we filmed that that early season podcast. So if it's if I'm archery hunting, like I you're normally hunting over a food source and by the time you walk in in the morning, you're going to bugger everything off and then you're just sitting there. So that's why like I always recommend early, early season, just hunting the afternoons because you're getting into the, the stand or the blind. You haven't buggered anything off and, and you're really just focused on that. That last hour of the day basically is when deer start showing up the last couple minutes is when the big, the big bucks. So in Texas, the huge difference is we're using a rifle. So it's not like we need to get, 25 yards set up from where we think the shot's going to be we were set up 120 to 150 yards away easy walk in so we got in there plenty of time so it's like all right let's let's get in while it's still dark we're not gonna we're not next to where the feeder's at we're not messing anything up over there the wind's perfect um let's just slip into the blind and, and get set
2: and then wait for that first light so that's what we did on day two I got you. And this is where Justin, I'm sure, uh, you know, cause you and I do a lot of the producing and everything. And, and in the past, it's like the, when the deer shows up, <laughs> you're like, shit, I can't film him because it's way yeah. too dark, but Mark could shoot him. I mean, that's just the nature of what we do as well as mm-hmm. like, you know, a, a full sensor camera or a mirrorless camera, a lot of times doesn't pick up what you can see in a scope and what you can shoot. So like when you get into the stand that morning and this deer shows up and it's your target deer, what the hell are you thinking? Are are, are you freaking out a little bit? (laughs) Oh, it's one of those things. So it's my first time. So first time hunting in Texas. So I can tell you
1: in Michigan, like that deer shows up and you're like, the clock is ticking because it is not going to be waiting around very long. Um, so that deer showed up, obviously, using the binos and, and the rifle scope. I can see it clear as day and just kept looking at Justin. He's like, can't see it. Can't <laughs> see it. Can't see it. Son of a gun. All right. staring at it. I'm like, man, it's going to take off. Going to take off. Can't see it. Oh. So it goes back and forth, it eats, then it goes in the scrub brush and, and keeps going back and forth. And it seemed like, I mean, as a lot of us hunters have been there, it seemed like in my head it was probably four hours that we waited for Justin to get light that morning.
3: Yeah,
2: well, That's, and and you'll see on the footage too, like you'll see in the blind, Justin's got black, literally black and white footage. It's because he's using the infrared uh, section, uh, what would you call it? Justin, help me out. Like a filter or something. Yeah, like what you call it. It's like an infrared deal you can use on the camera, and it just shows up black and white. So you're going to see that, and you can kind of hear Mark the audio. Like Justin said, you're kind of living in a hollow box here. You can hear him, Mark, say, like, you know, I'm basically ready. And Justin's like, we need to wait. Like, I, you know, (laughs) it's just not conducive to what we're trying to do here. And listen, I'm a
1: shooter, okay? Yeah, I, a shooter's gonna when shoot. It's, when, it, when it's time, when shooters shooting, when it's time, it's
3: time. No, we we always joke about this. We've talked about it in the past. We we burn gunpowder and ground check them. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but Aaron, like to your point, Aaron, like running the infrared on the camera, and then you can tell, like, once I switch it off, like. I still knew in the infrared, it was still overexposed. So I knew like, okay, we're probably good. I switched it off and you can actually see the fact that, okay, it it does make sense. Like it's still, you know, dawn kind of a blue light, but you can get an idea like as a viewer to be like, wow, that's, that's a huge difference. Like imagine, I think we had to watch that deer for like 15 or 20 minutes. Like I, I was, it's a, it's a, I just dead rolled on it. The whole clip in case Mark decided to say, screw it and pull the trigger. (laughs) Which is always an option. It's always an option. He he likes
2: to keep us on our toes.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I don't know. Going back to your question, like production wise, when you see that switch happen, you can really understand like how much light you need for the camera versus Mm -hmm. how much light you see through your binoculars or your scope. Like there's a big, big difference and it's, it's always an excuse or it sounds like an excuse, right? To like not shoot something or like we ran out of camera light or, you know, the same thing happens in the afternoon when you've got to shoot your buck at 20 yards or something, you know, with a bow and it's, you're still within your legal shooting hours, but you ran out of light for the camera. Like,
2: yeah. And luckily you just a- got to
3: call off the shot or tell the guy like, It's up to you, but can't see it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And luckily in all the years I've done this, I have yet to have to call someone that I'm filming off a deer or off an animal. And because I don't want to do that like at all. (laughs) Like Mark, we came close in in Kansas. I will say that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we did come a little close Getting a
2: little dark. I didn't want to, I didn't want to make that call, but like, that's the thing. Like a lot of people that don't film, you don't understand how much those optics, those loophole optics bring in so much light and it's still within shooting hours where like it is, it is a night and day difference. Like Justin Mm -hmm. said, you know what I mean? And it's the cameras just as much as you spend on cameras and lenses and everything. It just still, it's just not to the point what uh, a loophole binocular or, you know, a, a scope is, it's just crazy. Okay. So we're at the moment of truth here. So you're, you're waiting at this deer for, you know, Mark says four hours, Justin says 12 minutes. So we're waiting, you know, somewhere in that, that range. Now, what is this deer doing? I mean, I know what he's doing. Cause I've, I've edited it and everything, you know, he's bumping does and everything, but what, what's this deer's demeanor? You know, is he, is he food oriented or is he worrying more about the does? He's food oriented, and he's he's wondering
1: about the does is how I put it. It's not like he's chasing; he's just coming in. He's he's eating, and then all of a sudden there'll be a doe that comes in, and he's like, "I don't know what I'm going to do with this. I'm going to go. I'm going to walk at her, and then she goes running off because obviously it's not time." And he's like, mm, "I'm hungry again. I'm going to walk back over and, and grab something to eat." And then all of a sudden he would take off, and he's gone out of sight for a second, and another minute later he pops back in. Um, to me, it's like I'm sitting there ready to rock and roll, and you see him walk off and disappear for a minute, in the back of your head, you're like, nah, he's gone. That's yep. it. He's, he's gone. And then all of a sudden, he'd, he'd pop back in. Like It was one of those things, not hunting in Texas, like I I had no idea how long this deer would stay Like on just that experience of, of hunting early in October like that of, is this deer going to literally stay here for 30, 35 minutes this morning, doing the same thing of coming to eat, leaving, coming back? walking this doe off, coming back to eat and, and, and do this naturally, like everything plays so much slower when it's going on in your head of like, in every instance, you're like, this deer is going to leave. The wind's going to switch. Something's going to happen and it takes off. Um, but luckily Justin finally, finally, finally gave <laughs> me the green light that he had enough, enough daylight over there. I'm pretty sure he'd been filming. i pretty good for 20 minutes, but uh, finally gave me the green light. And the next time he came in, the old gun works did the rest. Yeah.
2: So what you're saying, Marcus, he was like a 13 year old boy. He was very food oriented, but you know, when a girl comes around, he's really curious about it, but then he's like, ah, I just like that food a little bit more right now. Yep. Yep. <laughs> just not quite sure what's going on. Yeah. Not quite right. sure what's going on. So, yeah. So the gun works, you know, you, you burnt some powder, You ground checked him and like, that's, that's what, uh, I don't know that that's the cool thing about it is like, um, I don't know. It, it, it's. The deer itself is obviously the the main part of this story, I I, I should say. I think he's the main part just because it's Mm. these whitetails are like they're all, you know, similar, but they're all vastly different in the same sense. Like, you know, and I really like how you guys capitalize on the way, you know, that time of year, that phase and everything was really, you know, presenting to you guys you know mm-hmm. I, I don't know i feel like i'm talking in circles i guess but i don't i'm just trying to think of like i guess when you when you shoot this deer like mark how what was your excitement level at was it like okay another notch in the bell or you know that's a good deer like wh- where your where's your headspace at
1: and you guys have you guys have been with me enough in the field that usually when i i get pretty jacked when the trigger gets pulled so i Obviously, Justin again always likes to cover every base with the filming thirteen times over. So we shot and we had to stay in the blind for another hour just to make sure he had every cutaway that he needed to before we went out and actually went and put the hands on him and and took a look at him. But I still remember walking out there and you get that that rush of excitement as you as you see the antlers sticking up out of the ground and and the first thing I thought is, "Holy smokes, we shot a midget deer!" (laughs) Like that's the legs are so short, so short, and like seeing it for the first time it like to me it looks awesome because the antlers are so big and it's got this midget body on it and it's just a it's a cool looking deer compare like comparing it to to michigan deer or deer here it's just not having seen it up close
2: obviously the first one on the ground it just looks so cool well and his color too like his fur his coat and everything was kind of like Mm -hmm. a like a white like almost like Like a gray wasn't it? he almost looked like an older older deer yep oh he's definitely an
1: old deer but you're 100 correct it definitely had this gray tone to it
0: fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish it's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home it's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. If you hunt enough, you learn the truth. What you seek speaks a language and knows it well. That's why every primo's call for everything you hunt is made the right way. We sweat every detail so you get more out of every hunt and nothing leaves our hand until we know it'll work in Europe, because we don't just make the world's
1: best calls; we speak the language. Primos.
2: Yeah, Justin, being around a lot of those Texas whitetails and everything, like, do you did you see that a lot, or is that very regional specific, down in Texas?
3: No, it seems. I think it's pretty common. Um, I think it's just because of their hair is so much shorter and finer. Uh, I don't know. I, I can't give you some fancy name for it. <laughs> <But> <laughs> it's, uh, Go
2: back to the textbooks on that one.
3: Yeah, it's 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 de- it's very similar to like a coos deer. Like they call the coos deer the gray ghost, but it's mm-hmm. I think it's just part of that like product of their environment. Like, you know, they don't need to disappear in thick timber or you know, hunker down in a brush field like Goldenrod or something, you know. It's it's very rocky. It's very, you know, low brush kind of scrub oak, just, it's really rugged terrain, but I don't know. It's, they definitely are different in color. I got you. If you think,
1: if you think about the, that terrain though, it's got this, it's it's like a desert floor, but it has this, the grass that comes up, but it's a light colored grass. So all of a sudden you get one of these white tails that's standing in this, this grass. And I mean, the grass is only eight to 12 inches tall, but it's, it's tall and it goes in the background. The deer disappears. Cause the hair, the hair matches the color of the grass, basically, especially in those low light situations. And you'll be watching this deer go. And then all of a sudden it stops you'll take your eye off for a second and go back and be like, man, the deer left. And Mm -hmm. then look through the binos. You're like, oh no, it's still standing there. It just literally blends in so well. Yeah. Mark, did you guys weigh that deer at all? We did not. We did not do the old Michigan weight test.
2: What What do you? Th- I mean, yeah, I know you lifted it back in the truck and helped the guide and everything. But what What do you think it was?
1: Well, I mean, I've been working out, so I uh, <laughs> I of course picked that thing up by myself and and carried it over my shoulder over to the truck. I, I have, I'm trying to think here, Justin. What do you think that deer weighed?
3: Hundred and ten pounds. That's, really? That's kind
1: of that's kind of what I was thinking.
3: Yeah,
2: man. Because when you look at the footage, though, that deer looks like a brute out there. But it's a midget. It's a midget deer, so short.
1: <laughs> Is that another that. subspecies?
2: <laughs> it, I, like you walk up to it and you are like, "Where are its legs? Yeah. Where are the legs?" Ah, uh, you fooled me, man. Because I'll yeah. tell you what, and that when you look at that footage, that deer looks like a
3: tank coming through there. I don't know. They they are a cool one to watch, like on the hoof, because like going back to the density, they do act a little bit differently to me, like socially amongst each other, than compared to like you know, four does come out to your food plot in Michigan and, you know, a spike buck. And it's like, there's a little bit of like that check them out, like in and out kind of thing. But when you have that many deer in one place, it's, it's cool to watch them interact with each other.
1: Yeah, I think they're, just, they're used to seeing some more. And like the little bit of that I got, Justin, tell me if I'm completely off base here or if, or if I'm close, is that like the larger deer... Are probably a little bit more aggressive in Texas because there's so many more. Like it's, it's not like here in Michigan to where there's like a there's a yeah there's a large deer here in Michigan and he knows he's he's the king of his range because there's just not that many other other deer. But in Texas you're like man all right 130 140 inch deer okay well there's 14 of them literally in a in in a couple thousand acres so they run into each other all the time so it's like that constant especially when the rut starts they've got to be more aggressive than I think they have to up up north here
3: yeah I would I would equate that to just the way natural selection works with animals and that competition like you're going to have those 130s that are going to are going to mess with each other all day amongst themselves and then you've got the older deer that are you know the 150 deer 160s whatever they would be score wise but they still have to out compete those 130s Mm -hmm. and they don't they don't they don't get like a harem of of does like like an elk would get cows or like an antelope you know herds up all of his does but it's just like check one move on check one move on and fight off every other buck along the way
2: mark um you know to kind of go back to that day you know, you, you kill this deer, you, this is your number two deer, the slam. So you got the Northeastern deer done. Then you got the Texas whitetail. Where's your head at right now? As far as like, you know, second notch in the belt kind of thing. Like where, what are you thinking as far as like the deer slam as the deer slam goes?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this is so early and having done the, the upland slams and then the North America in the South America waterfall slam, like, I think I'm pretty well into like that early stage of just taking it all in, like comparing the differences of, of what the Texas hunt was to the Michigan hunt, to, to all the other deer hunting that I've done and, and being like, okay. And one thing I have found though, is like when you're in a re like in a region, like, okay, you're, you're hunted the Texas whitetail for whatever reason is for the comfort or whatever you start. Like for me, I'm like, okay what are the other deer that are close by to here, the other subspecies? So that's why we went after the Carmen. Um, we've, we're going to go after the uh, Mexican Texanus deer coming up here too. So you're like, if it's just something with the planning, like I feel comfortable, like you're, you're growing this circle and it keeps getting bigger and bigger. And yes, there are differences, but it's not like extreme differences of
2: how the deer act at the same time. I got you. Yeah, that makes total sense. Like right now, you know i I'd probably be in the same boat because like you know this could be like a six-year project mm-hmm. you know there's a lot there's 31 species here that you have to chase after and you know and it's I think once it gets to the latter part of it it might be a little bit different like okay like we're getting close like almost like you're chasing that home run record or you know or you're, you're going for that Super Bowl yep. you're you, you know something like that it's just I feel like uh I, ju- I just want to know where your headspace was because you know, it could be different for, more, for everybody. So yeah. yeah and, I when definitely you're sit- get that.
1: and when you're sitting there just staring at 31, you're like, and it's like every, every slam I've done has been, cha- has been extremely challenging in its, in its own way and own right. And deer hunting, especially, cause if you think about the, the, the majority of the deer season, it's okay. There's some early season hunting in September, but it's mainly October through December is when the, when the prime prime deer hunting is. Now, some of these desert species down in Mexico, you can go early and later just because the seasons um, are a tad bit longer and depending on where they're at. So it extends it out, but still you're like, you can't go and just say, I'm going to go and try to get 15 or 18 of these things in a season because the, the season doesn't allow it. And I fully right. know going into this one, just like the, the waterfall slam and the upland slam, there are going to be trips that we go on that are unsuccessful for whatever reason. Um, with my schedule in the fall, we, we try to catch early seasons that are more special. Like we did Kansas this year, early muzzleloader season. Well, when I set that hunt up in, in April, I didn't know it was going to be 105 degrees there, that there was going to be a mate. Like I didn't know that coming in. So obviously that, that hunt got there and you're waiting literally for the last three minutes of the day, just hoping a big deer comes out, but it's 103. So you're like, mm-hmm. most likely it's not going to come out. So that, that hunt didn't, didn't work out how it is. So obviously we'll be going back or another state in that area. So you have trips to where I fully know they're not going to be successful. Um, I got you. Another one, when Justin and I went down to the jungle to go bracket, deer hunting, completely different, completely different than any white till well, it's completely different than any other deer that we're going to hunt along this thing. Cause first of all, you're hunting with a shotgun out of a machan, which you're hanging out of a tree. Um, But again, we weren't successful, so you're like, we're gonna have to have to go back to do that one again. Now, the beauty of that one is is you can hunt them in the spring, so it extends that that deer season of how long you can hunt.
2: Yeah, well, and like the Kansas hunt you and I were on as well, not successful, but like that's kind of limited to the fall time, yep. you know, so Mm -hmm. that would be like a, if you don't do it this year, it'd be like a next year thing. We got to try that again kind of thing.
1: Yep. So yeah, with Kansas, we got a muzzleloader tag. So it was good for the muzzleloader season, but you can also use that muzzleloader tag during rifle season as well. So as it gets Mm -hmm. closer to rifle season, we'll see how the schedule lays out and what the weather looks like out there. And maybe if it makes sense, we'll scoot back out for a couple more days and, and, and maybe get lucky again, using the muzzleloader during rifle season, just because that's the tag we have this year. But if for some reason it doesn't work out, we're going to plan it again for next year or the year after. And, and maybe we don't go muzzleloader hunting in that early season. Maybe we get an archery tag to go back.
2: Yep. Yeah, for sure. Well, cool. I, uh, I think we're going to wrap this up here I mean, this was another great episode of, you know, the, the deer slam and and the podcast as well. But Mark, you know, if people are out there listening to this and they want to know more information about each species or regional where they're at, where can you direct them to go and, and get all that info?
1: Yep. So we're going to build, because because there's so many, if you think about it, 31 species, um, so many locations, so much so much history. We're going to house that on my website, markvpeterson.com. Um, we will, obviously, after we go through each trip and as we go through the airings, there'll be stuff on social. Um, but if you're looking for really the background, the maps and everything, I'd head to my website obviously as as these episodes start rolling out we're going to try to have as much information about the subspecies the area obviously the hunt will play out in all the digital episodes as well these will all go on linear but i think the digital we can just tell the story better and i don't i don't know if word story is correct but we can we can explain it better just because of how the format is in digital you can make it your own You can tie the Mm -hmm. maps in, you can explain why, why we did this and you can compare it to other ones so much better, I think in that format than, than linear. And I think it's going to be pretty darn cool. I don't know how many years down the road once, once this slam's complete, but by the time you have 31 different deer species from North America, all on that digital list that you can sit there and click
2: on. And I, I, to me, I think
1: it's going to be awesome.
2: Yep. I agree. I agree 100%. Uh, Justin, you got anything in closing?
3: No, not really. Um,
1: no, other si- no other science information that you want to drop over there?
3: <laughs> no, not today.
1: Bergman's Rule. I wrote it down.
3: Bergman's Rule. What do you think is going to be the hardest one? Like, I look back, having been part of the North America and South America waterfowl, and it's like, you think about the canvas back and you know whatever you can pick out the one that was hard once it's over but looking forward what do you think is going to be the most challenging
1: so i I, i've got the list in front of me here and and seen this before like when we were in the north america waterfall slam or even south america like he'll just catch me i'll just be staring at that freaking list on my phone just just going through it and making plans of where we're going to bounce to what we're going to do next and i've 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 looked at this list a thousand times so far. And as I, as I scroll through, um, they're all, I mean, like every, everyone on here is very weather dependent. And if you catch it at the right time and and just the right situation, that is, that is deer hunting. But like, if I look at this and go down the list, there's some of these deer species in in central Mexico that are going to be tricky logistic wise, because it's not something that's done by a thousand people a year. It's not something that's done by a hundred people a year shoot a lot of these aren't even done by 10 people a year some are done by two or three so you start talking logistics coming in and and all the planning and then all of, of course we have cameras with us which which makes it even tougher to to get into some of these areas and they're not used to hunting while filming which honestly is is a lot more difficult than just going on a hunt um but again as i look at this list the central american white-tailed deer is is to me that's going to be one that i've already in my head planned on two or three trips to go it's basically a it's a white-tailed deer that's in the jungle region um so very close to to where we hunt the bracket deer in in campeche we're going to be hunting those fringe egg fields that butt up to the jungle and looking for this small subspecies of white tail to where a giant one is a six point and it's a small basket six. And that is basically a record book deer. Um, and it's going to be tough again, cause the jungle is always hot. So it's not like these deer are coming out at two o'clock in the afternoon. It's going to be early morning, late night, just hoping to catch them. And, and the deer density for that area is, isn't real high. It's not like you're going to be staring at a hundred deer. You're going to be over the course of a week. We may see three to four hoping one is a good buck. So just, just knowing going into that, it's going to be difficult. But other ones, there's a, a, like anything, there's a ton of logistical stuff. There's some, like the Mexican Central Plateau deer, the Mexican Gulf Coast deer, like where we're going here out of Veracruz. Like There's only a couple tags a year. And I don't mean like a couple 20. I mean a couple two to three. Yeah. So you're going in and, and so by the time you only run two or three hunts, it's not like, okay, we're going to land and, and they know exactly what we're doing. There's a lot of, once we get on the ground, we're going to have to figure it out while we're there. That makes but, sense. Yeah. But then, I mean, they're like, I, like I got the list in front of me, like Anacosta Island. Like I've wanted to do that hunt since I was eight because there was so much magazine press and everything behind that one when I was growing up. It just looks awesome. Now you're not going to go there and shoot 140 inch deer. That's that, that's not what the hunt is about. It's about going to that Island and having the experience of spot and stock deer hunting. It's completely different. Crawling down the list, like the Baja deer, like, I can't wait to do that one. Vancouver Island blacktail, Like that one's going to be tough too. Cause it's so vegetated there. Like I've started the planning on that one and talking, talking with John and Dawson up there. Like that's going to be a tricky one. Cause again, the density isn't real high those deer are extremely educated. Um, and it's Vancouver Island. So chances of rain are about 99.6% that time of year.
0: So it's going (laughs) to, it's going to,
1: it's going to be wet. And all of a sudden in the back of my head, I'm like, that is going to destroy some cameras because I instantly Mm -hmm. know we're going to be out there hunting in that rain and it is going to be tough on cameras to get that, get that footage to work.
2: Hey, I like new cameras.
1: Everybody, you guys all like, (laughs) all like new new cameras, but then like some of the other ones I'm, I'm planning out here, like, like the plains white tail. So I'm like, as I plan that out, like I, I love hunting the Eastern plains of Colorado, especially it's like a hidden gym for white tail. But then I'm looking at, I'm like, man, maybe I should hunt a different state that I haven't deer hunted yet. Like North Dakota or South Dakota, just, just something that's different because I haven't been there
2: yeah and it would i like be, that
1: and it would be cool and and as, as i start breaking these things apart i'm like maybe i should look at different areas that i haven't hunted to do it like how cool would it be like i've never whitetail hunted montana like how many times have you heard of the milk river like i that's oh, one let's like go to the milk river like <laughs> as i'm planning like as i'm planning this out i'm like that would be a sweet one yeah so maybe maybe we go and do that or or like i've on um Blacktails. So I've hunted Oregon numerous times and had great luck with Rob out there, and that's where we're going. Uh, Columbia Whitetail hunting again, but I'm like, okay, as I as I start looking at blacktail deer, maybe we go to California because I haven't done, I haven't hunted, and I haven't had that experience yet. Maybe we try to tie that one into into the slam, and we can always use past footage of the Oregon stuff to tie it in, also just just for the experience and all that kind of stuff. But like. I just, get me excited again as I start going through this list, like just because it's going to bring me to new, new areas and you can, in like, you can try new things within it too.
2: Yeah. I like that too, Mark. Like, cause you know, when you, when you came up with the name, the journey within, like you even said the essence of it is the journey. Like mm-hmm. it's the, it's the, it's, you know, the, the kills, the, the icing on the cake, but it's the journey that gets you there. I think you go into different states or different regions or locations like is a really good idea. Mm-hmm. And I think you're just going to hit a broader audience as well. And, and it won't be so like cookie cutter. Like everybody goes to Iowa you know what I mean? So Listen, don't why, hurt don't hurt Justin's feelings. He hey, literally it's hurt just my start, feelings he, saying it. <laughs> he started to shed
1: a tear. He started cause every time <laughs> just like you
2: gotta go to Iowa. It's gotta be in the yeah. slam.
1: You gotta do it. You have to do it.
2: Hey, I will tell you, I'll be the first one. Being a midway or being a being a whitetail guy, like I think yes, it is the motherland. I think you should go there and kill like that. Is the pinnacle but I agree with where you're where where you're coming from It's like why not do something a little against the grain kind of and, thing
1: and there's there's the beauty
2: about this is there's no wrong decision like right. there's no there's no wrong decision like
1: and I'm looking at like the the Gulf Coast deer, so you can hunt part of that in Florida Mississippi Louisiana like i I instantly i don't know why I think about deer hunting in Louisiana and I just start itching because I can only imagine there's <laughs> seven million mosquitoes there has to be and sugars seven, and ticks. seven million mosquitoes as you're trying to sit there and hunt but i'm like man that'd be cool because it's it's different like like that's that's part of it is just the experiences along the way even as i look at the list like axis deer free range axis deer so i've been i've been fortunate and hunted hawaii a couple different times for axis deer and I i love it there and i'm like man maybe i should go and do that but i'm like at the same time i'm like Well, there are a couple other areas that have free range access deer. Like you hear so many about Texas. And then where we're going in Veracruz, they actually have free range access deer. And now all of a sudden I'm like, man, how cool would it be to get a free range access deer in Veracruz, Mexico? That's never been on on camera before. So we're like, do we extend that trip for a couple of days and try to try to make that happen? And I'm like, man, that's that's definitely gonna be a go. Because then at the same time as we tell that story, we can tell the story of Hawaii too, because we already have that footage. Mm Mm-hmm yeah you're getting me
2: excited again possibilities are endless yep well very cool guys i appreciate you guys taking the time to do this Uh, i know we have a lot more to record as we get these hunts done so thank you guys very much for your time and uh yeah i think we'll cut this one loose
1: thanks everybody and as always as you start to watch these videos make sure to drop your comments in there helps us to to know what everybody's most intrigued on and and we can keep improving every day especially for those field producers they need it
2: Yep, definitely. Definitely need the comments, (laughs) tips, tricks, anything you guys have to to make us better field producers would be great. That's 100% true. Thanks, guys. Thank you, everyone out there, for all the support
1: and downloads. Don't forget, go leave a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts. That always helps. Also, if you're looking to book the hunt of a lifetime, go visit WTA at WorldWideTrophyAdventures.com or give the team a call in the office at 1-800-755-8247.